Thank you, Star. Um, well, thank you, first of all, to Stella and Peter for inviting me, although, as I was saying at lunch, I think it's in the way of a poisoned chalice or at least an invitation to um, uh, put up or shut up in the sense that uh, as working together on radical philosophy for, what, nearly 10 years, um, I spent a lot of time whining that they don't take Derrida seriously enough while at the same time refusing to ever write on Derrida. So um, I'm kind of breaking my, my dark. I, I wrote an obituary for Derrida. That's the only time I've ever written on Derrida. So in another 10 years, I'll write another paper uh, on Derrida. Um, the, the brief I was given, which I've tried to, to stick to, was to talk about uh, Derrida, uh, transdisciplinarity and writing. Um, so th the paper really has three parts, um, a, a kind of general attempt to contextualise this, particularly in terms of a transnational context between French philosophy and Anglophone theory. Um, and then generally going through some things to do with Derrida's work on philosophy or on the relationship of deconstruction to philosophy, particularly um, as intervened in this, by this idea of the inter-science and the, the, the text that I um, gave to, to, to George to put in the um, uh, booklet or online that many of you have seen. Uh, and then in, in the latter part of the paper, which is, I guess, the more substantive part, to talk about this really in relation to um, structuralism, first of all, um, and, and then in relation to the book of, of grammatology, um, which, it, which in a way, I guess, a, a bit like Etienne said this morning about the order of things, is, is, is a book, I think, that is peculiarly unread. Uh, and it, and it's, it's an interesting book in Derrida's oeuvre, as many of the essays of that well, things written in that mid-60s period are, in that Derrida hasn't quite yet become Derrida. <laughs> or hasn't quite yet become Derrida in the sense in which Derrida will become then a kind of a, a fairly stabilised or to some degree formalised philosopher. So there are still all sorts of marks and traces of other kinds of things and discourses going on uh, in Derrida's work at that point, which is partly what I want to try and pick up on here. Um, so I'm going to start with a kind of contextualising quote, and, and this comes from Frederick... Uh, Jameson, and it, it comes from his 2002 book, A Singular Modernity, uh, in the preface to that, which is called Regressions of the Current Age, uh, where he suggests that we are, in the last few years, beginning of the, the millennium, uh, seeing the return to all kinds of old things. And he says, thus, while one of the great achievements of theory or theoretical discourse was surely to have discredited philosophy in a traditional disciplinary sense, and to have stimulated a proliferation of new kinds of thinking and new kinds of conceptual writing, now we begin to witness the return of traditional philosophy all over the world, beginning with its hoariest subfields such as ethics. Can metaphysics be far behind, one wonders, if not theology itself? Now, there's an obvious um, uh, parochialism in this idea that such regressions are happening all over the world, um, a parochialism that might be traced back to the favoured master concept in, in Jameson of, of postmodernism itself. But I think this passage does testify to something like a structure of feeling that would be hard for many of us to deny uh, today. Of course, any such question of the relation between philosophy and theory, whether theory is written with a capital T or otherwise, has always been in part a question of translation. As the editors of one recent collection entitled Theory After Theory put it, without in any way really interrogating the actual terms at stake, the heyday of theory is associated, above all, quote, with a moment of energy and excitement fueled in the English-speaking world by the production and translation of works by the seminal figures of post-war French philosophy. Insofar as then as theory, in this Anglophone form at least, is constituted through its displacement or negation of what Jameson calls philosophy in the traditional disciplinary sense. The fact that such a displacement finds its fuel in figures who can still themselves apparently be described as philosophers evidently complicates any simple account of the relation between the two. So this is where, I, in a sense, I want to start from this, this, this transnational uh, uh, context and in the context of this, this, this sense of a waning of, of a moment of theory uh, and the complexity of relation between uh, philosophy and theory um, in this, in part, obviously, because what has then tended to mark the continuation of theory has been, in some sense, a return to philosophy. Not, not quite, I think, in the, in the sense that Jameson is actually thinking about in 2002, which probably is much more traditional philosophy, but in a sense, what I think uh, uh, Nina was referring to um, in the previous talk, um, a kind of return to the claim for the sovereignty of philosophy over theory, that the theory has to continually reference itself back to 
philosophy. Um, Badiou, I see, is representative of that, despite the apparent emptying of the content, even more so, and despite the non, someone like Larawell and speculative realism and, and so on. So it's in this context that I, I want to look back, in a sense, then, to consider the work of that figure who has been most consistently thought to provide a theory's own philosophical fuel over the course of its 1970s and 1980s heyday, uh, which is, of course, Derrida. Now, in a, in a sense, to, to, to do so is already to acknowledge, if not affirm, a, a, a pervasive sense that the theoretical present might be defined in some ways post-Derridean or incoherently post-deconstructive uh, in some way from, from, a, from a variety of different perspectives. On the one hand, the kind of Badiouian uh, or, or Larouellian um, turn to axiomatics as, as presented at least in its Anglophone reception, as a way beyond deconstructive paralysis, deferral, uh, and so on. Or someone like Negri or Hart and Negri who line up um, a, a, a displacement between what they call the critical and deconstructive, which they associate with Derrida and Adorno, and then the constructive and the ethico-political, which they associate with Deleuze and Italian autonomism, and so on. So there's a sense in which, which, which Derrida has, has, has kind of given a proper name to some moment of theory uh, that, that is now said to have passed. Um, and more broadly, perhaps, um, Derrida's association with something called post-structuralism, um, in the sense that whatever else one might say about them, figures like Badiou and Ranciere um, are, are, would not tend to be described as post-structuralist thinkers. And with Deleuze as well, there's an interesting shift with Deleuze. Deleuze is commonly described as post-structuralist in the 80s and 90s and not really over the last decade, which in a way is a mark of the kind of re- the re-rendering of Deleuze as, as, as contemporary. Um, this is not then to say that the term post-structuralism is an adequate one, or ever was an adequate one. Um, certainly as far as Derrida is concerned, if he has to be post-anything, something like post-phenomenological would seem a more obvious or plausible um, term. But I do want in this, in a sense, to privilege um, this concept, if only retrospectively, because one of the things I want to argue uh, in a sense, picking up on what Peter said right at the beginning of the day, is that it is a certain model of transdisciplinarity um, that something like structuralism might be understood then historically uh, to acquire a particular critical significance in Derrida's work. So it's the way Derrida engages with structuralism that he most obviously engages with a problematic of uh, transdisciplinarity. So let's start with the, the, the straightforward question then. To what extent does deconstruction generate something like a thought of transdisciplinarity? Now the answer to this I want to suggest is not a simple one. Certainly a matter of influence its cross-disciplinary impact appears clear, although this may well be, as, as Peter was suggesting, um, a question of terminology um, as much as uh, uh, conceptuality. While his own work, of course, is, is distinguished by a, a fluency and fluidity of movement, apparently across different disciplines, early on from linguistics, literary criticism, anthropology to psychoanalysis, and then later architecture and law, and so on. Also, of course, famously as a practice of writing, most particularly in the 1970s, in texts such as Glass and uh, The Postcard, not least among the supposed scandals philosophically of deconstruction, was often taken to be its troubling of the boundaries between a properly philosophical discourse and literary modernist form, here indebted in particular to those exemplary paraphilosophical figures of French thought, Bataille and Blanchot. But, but most important of all, I guess, would be the sense that insofar as deconstruction serves to name something like a logic of a generalized contamination, of a generalized impurity. Um, by definition, this should be seen to disturb or unsettle without necessarily thereby collapsing any supposed purity or self-identity claimed by historical structures of disciplinarity uh, themselves. So take that to be a kind of a basic definition or basic understanding of, of, of deconstruction as stressing um, a generalized con contamination. And it would not be wrong, therefore, to see it as the very unsettling clear disciplinary uh, uh, boundaries. Yet, and this is what I want to focus on initially, it does not disturb them all equally or in quite the same way. For return to the, the context that I, I tried to outline a moment ago, it is evident that philosophy cannot in this regard be considered as simply one discipline among others. Hence, if nothing else, raising certain questions for us about the inescapability or otherwise of a certain movement of philosophizing to the construction of transdisciplinarity per se. It is my intention then in what follows to sketch a reading which seeks to situate deconstruction or Derrida up to a point at least precisely within a rather broader problematic of the disciplinary autonomy of philosophy itself or of what Marx called its self-sufficiency, 
which is in some sense a condition of philosophical uh, modernity as a whole. I mean, in part, pragmatically, this is a, a, an attempt to avoid what has now become, and Simon and I were talking about it before, the kind of ghettoization of the study of Derrida, in which Derridaeans just talk to other Derridaeans about Derrida outside of the history of philosophy, as it were. Um, now, it would, it would not be hard to show that such a problem of philosophy's self-sufficiency remains a persistent concern across almost all of Derrida's major writings and can be traced back to a number of essays of the 1960s. Hence, for example, the opening of Violence and Metaphysics, his, essay on, his first essay on Levinas, with its assertion that, quote, the only questions today capable of founding the community of those who are still called philosophers would be those concerning problems put to philosophy as problems philosophy cannot resolve. Problems put to philosophy as problems philosophy cannot resolve. I want to find my own particular point of entry, though, in another sheaf of texts written somewhat later between the latter half of the 1970s and 1990, and which have been collected together under the title The Right to Philosophy. Uh, and in particular, I want to focus on, first of all, the, the text that is in the, um, uh, um, the booklet um, entitled Titles, which is published as one of the book's um, appendices. Um, I'm not going to go into this great detail. You can read the text if you're, you're interested. Um, what interests me in, in this concept is it's the nearest thing, I guess, we have to a concept of transdisciplinarity in Derrida, an explicit concept of transdisciplinarity. Um, but it's one that appears in a peculiar context. The, the, the text, and one of the reasons why it's an appendices, is although Derrida wrote on, it, on its own, it was written to be collectively signed. So it, it's a text which is um, markedly free of a lot of the kind of usual vocabulary one would expect in Derrida, which in itself is, is, is kind of interesting. The reason why is it was written as part of a co-authored report um, that was produced in preparation for the founding of the Collège International de Philosophie in, in, in October 1983. The text itself is from uh, 82. Um, and what's, what's interesting in, in this um, uh, text is that, in a sense, Derrida starts out with what would seem a rather traditional set of questions. So he, he begins by saying that he's going to attempt to justify the titles of this new institution beginning with the name we propose to give it, why philosophy, why philosophy today, and why would this new college be, first of all, a college of philosophy, he writes. But then he goes on almost immediately to interrupt this by suggesting in turn a profound link, it's the word he himself uses, um, between this justification of philosophy and what he calls a concept of interscience. Now, one of the interesting things about this term, one of the other interesting things about this term, is it is, again, significantly a term that's taken up out of context, uh, Derrida observes in a footnote, not in fact from philosophy or from the lexicon of a philosopher, um, but from Einstein, or more specifically from the latter's citation in Brodel. Um, and it's, it's also a term that plays really no significant role outside of this um, specific text. Nonetheless, I think it is, it is worth um, exploring. So let me just... Um, quote what Derrida writes about it. As a concept, Derrida writes, the interscientific designates, quote, a matter of what happens, can, and must happen, must happen, between the domains of already legitimated fields when borders allow themselves to be exceeded or displaced. As such, it serves to name, he continues, any thematics, any field, any research activity that the map of institutions at a given moment does not yet grant stable, accredited, habit habitable departments thereby distinguished from what is conventionally called interdisciplinarity, which Derrida describes as a programmed cooperation between the representatives of the established sciences, the interscientific, he writes, is manifested as zones of instability, which while they may disturb a certain social representation of organized research, are sites of great traffic, privileged sites for the formation of new objects, or rather of new thematic networks, the formation of new objects, or rather of new thematic networks. In accordance, then, with a certain idea of invention and hence of the future, such zones are a supplement to philosophy, in a sense. That is, uh, they're in fact necessary to the work of the college as a whole. It is, Derrida writes, the privilege accorded to these interferences that will give the life of the college a character of its own. So Derrida, interestingly, doesn't put into play his own concept of supplementarity here, but in a way, he uh, effectively employs it by suggesting starting out from the question of what is philosophy, introducing the concept of the interscience, and then suggesting that somehow it is the concept of the interscience, the apparent supplement to philosophy, that in fact will give the college, as a college of philosophy, a character of its own, 
So, th so this is then the context for um, the college as a place of philosophy, right, which would also be a place where philosophy will be put into question. Now, a number of observations then have been worth making about what such a motif of intersectional crossing, and in fact, this is a very rare instance where Derrida uh, picks up a, a, a Deleuze or rather Guattarian term, transversality, implies, not least, of course, and with particular contemporary resonance, not least here in the UK, it's reminded that any account of disciplinarity or transdisciplinarity must be configured not solely as a theoretical question, but also as an institutional one. And in particular, what has been handed down to us of the concept of the university itself. While then Derrida's own intervention here is in good part intertwined with a precisely political struggle, or at least a, an institutional political struggle, around the education system in France, dating back to his work with Greff during the 1970s, it finds its own philosophical framing in a series of texts collected in the rights of philosophy, which return consistently to a reading of Kant's 1798, The Conflict of the Faculties, and to the critical responses uh, to this text. So I'm just going to uh, briefly talk a little bit about this reading of The Conflict of the, of, of the Faculties without going into huge detail. So Kant's construction and deduction of the university structure, a deduction because, in a sense, Kant is also taking over an existing formation of the university and seeking to rationally justify it, organizes itself, as is well known, around what are defined as two classes of faculty, the three so-called higher faculties of theology, law, and medicine, regulated by the government, and the lower faculty of philosophy, over which, as Derrida puts it, the ruling power should have no right of censorship so long as philosophy speaks about truth within the university. As a hierarchy of high and low, however, this is immediately reversible insofar as the so-called higher faculties are in being governed by the state, themselves governed by a criteria of utility, which contrasts them unfavorably from the standpoint of reason with philosophy's concern for truth. If thus, this thus re-legitimates philosophy's claim to stand theoretically above and over the other disciplines, the faculty of philosophy, writes Kant, can thus require all disciplines to submit their truth to an examination. This is complicated over in turn by Kant's further division of philosophy itself into two departments. On the one hand, that of historical knowledge, including the empirical knowledge contained in the natural sciences, and on the other, what will become philosophy, as well as mathematics, in its more familiar modern sense, the department of pure rational knowledge. Now, as Derrida points out in his various readings of this text, there are a number of different layers of potential conflict that Kant is trying to resolve here. Perhaps most important is what must appear as an irreducibly paradoxical conception of the space occupied by philosophical disciplinarity itself. For insofar as the freedom of judgment over questions of truth is what Kant takes to be the unconditioned condition of university autonomy in general, this unconditioned condition, Derrida writes, is nothing other than philosophy. As Derrida puts it, the concept of universitas is in this sense the concept of philosophy itself and is reason, or rather the principle of reason, as institution. Though of inferior in power, philosophy ought to control all other faculties in matters arising from truth. Kant's attempt to mark off the juridical borders internal to the university can thus only result in an internally divided conception of philosophy itself, as that which would simultaneously occupy the institutional space of one specific department, faculty or discipline, within a university topology. Uh, Kant at one point says something like, um, if there, if, if, if there is to be a university, there must be a department of philosophy. So although there's then the faculty of philosophy, there's also the department of philosophy. Um, at the same time, it must also constitute the very essence or general theoretical concept of the university space as a whole. So it has to be both part and whole uh, simultaneously. Now, as, as Derrida observes historically, it is precisely the paradoxical nature of this topological perspective that is more or less immediately called into question in Schelling's lectures on the method of university studies, which is, I think, 1802, uh, so four years after Kant's text. In Schelling's own words, something which is all things cannot for that very reason be anything in particular. Something which is all things cannot for that reason be very, anything in particular. Yet Schelling's own absolute generalization of philosophy also contains a number of presuppositions of its own. For the problem, according to Schelling, is that, and this is quoting Derrida then, all the dissociations of Kantian critique must evidently allow themselves to be thought. They can do so only from the standpoint of that which makes dissociation itself thinkable and possible, namely an originary unity. And if we start from this, then all differences will only be translations, a generalized translation of the same which is projected or reflected in different categories, an originary knowledge presupposed by all critical delimitation, end quote. 
So it's not hard then to read Kant's book, as Derrida does, along with Schelling's response, as an opening, indeed, what Derrida calls a pre-inaugural salvo, an emergent problematic of disciplinarity itself, particularly once the two departments of philosophy, the historical and pure rational knowledge, come themselves to separate off over the course of the 19th century. So now, if this can be, no doubt be said to mark the passage to a specific institutional philosophical modernity, it is then, despite or because of its apparent eccentricity within his oeuvre, that a concept of interscience, which is framed in the book as a whole by this discussion of Kant, might then, I think, be understood, if not as a proposed solution, then at least one significant means of negotiating the questions that derive from this paradox in, in, in uh, Kant's work and, and through that, therefore, in Derrida's work. However, it also thereby clearly raises a question of the status of Derrida's own thought in this regard. To take merely the most obvious example, to what extent is, say, writing the object of a grammatology, famously, which must not be, Derrida writes, either one of the sciences of man or just one regional science among others, an inter-science in this sense. Is writing, for Derrida, a transdisciplinary concept? And if so, how does it relate to the form of the philosophical concept in this sense? I want to begin then by taking a first a step back to the strategic privilege that I suggested a moment ago one might give here to a reconsideration of the notion of post-structuralism. Importantly, in the case of Derrida, this concerns then both an engagement with first the conception of language or a semiology that in general underpins such a model as a structuralism, and second with structuralism's apparent challenge to the theoretical primacy or privilege of philosophy itself as it is posed from the inter- and cross-disciplinary sites of the human or social sciences, and in particular from their claim to some non-philosophical scientificity as such. Significantly in both cases, Derrida's point of initial interrogation concerns then the reliance of structuralism upon what he identifies as certain precisely philosophical presuppositions that necessarily accompany this very transdisciplinary aspiration to displace philosophy itself. So the the interest of Derrida's critique of, of, of structuralism is not to critique it for being not philosophical enough, but for being too philosophical in a particular way. That, that, that structuralism, in a sense, I don't really want to use the Freudian vocabulary, but it, is, it, it has a kind of unconscious philosophy continually at work at it. As a result, then, Derrida shows, structuralist thinkers tend inevitably to generate some new transcendental term to do the job of explanation once reserved for philosophical thought what Derrida calls a transcendental contraband, uh, the very philosophical or metaphysical nature of which it is constitutively unable to think. So this is Derrida's version, in a sense, of, of the same argument that Deleuze will make a couple of years later in the structuralism essay that, that, that structuralism is a new uh, uh, transcendentalism, uh, although I think Derrida, at least at that stage, is more worried about that than, than Deleuze perhaps is. Here, then, a certain model of transdisciplinarity threatens to become a more or less positivistic and unknowing renewal of transcendental philosophy elsewhere, another name for theory, perhaps, if here of a very different kind, a point explored, for example, in the 1971 essay on Benveniste, the supplement of the copula, which is significantly subtitled Philosophy Before Linguistics, uh, an essay which systematically looks to dismantle Benveniste's attempts to reduce the Aristotelian categories merely to the fundamental categories of the language in which he thought, in which, the, in which case then language effectively becomes the new transcendental, which would transcendentalize philosophical discourse itself. It was the kind of arguments that resulted then from such early critical readings uh, in which the attempt to master or have done with philosophy is demonstrated to rely on a series of aporias that appear to engage anyone who takes on the task of defining the constraints which limit philosophical discourse insofar as it is, quote, from the latter, that the non-critical notions which are applied to its limitation must be borrowed, that in turn came for many to define a certain more or less instrumentalised practice of deconstruction per se. But more importantly, for my purposes, they serve to articulate with particular force the resultant complexity of Derrida's own works, broader relation to philosophy, precisely from the perspective of a certain historical model of transdisciplinarity itself. In other words, out of the critique of, of structuralism um, emerges at some level the question of Derrida's own relationship to philosophy given the nature of the critique of, of, of structuralism that he's making. Now, most obviously it should be acknowledged this complexity is generally associated above all with Derrida's apparent endorsement of Heidegger's task of what the latter famously terms thinking a term returned to in the titles piece as well, as the ongoing destruction of the history of metaphysics of presence or ontotheology, 
an endorsement, if this is in fact what it is, which seeks at the same time to distance itself from Heidegger's own tendency to conceive of such post-philosophical thinking, what Heidegger calls a thinking to come, in a form of a simultaneous return to a pre-philosophical beginning associated with an accompanying metaphorics of proximity and nearness, gathering or dwelling, including, as Derrida puts it, the motif of the proximity of being to the essence of man. And certainly Derrida's stress upon the necessity and inescapability of some reflective negotiation with the metaphysical inheritance, language, and conceptuality both apparently follows a broadly Heideggerian line concerning the closure of philosophy or metaphysics and is in part what animates the deconstruction of structuralist theory itself, where such theory might imagine that it could simply free itself of such a debt. So Derrida's obvious early interest in, in, in Heidegger is Heidegger's sense that one can only negotiate that debt, not, not free oneself from that debt of philosophical conceptuality. The problem with structuralism is in imagining that it can simply free itself from uh, the inheritance of philosophy, it ends up re-philosophizing all the more uh, strongly. All this is, I imagine, uh, familiar enough, but it is worth noting quickly two further things in relation to it. First, it is precisely the attempt to reduce the complexity of this relationship to philosophy that the two most persistent misreadings of Derrida can thus be said to lie, both of which would effectively close down the trans or counterdisciplinary problematics at stake here, but from significantly opposed directions. That is, on the one hand, those who have taken Derrida because he sought to demonstrate that philosophy cannot ever dominate or reduce without disruptive remainder a contingency, historicity, or material facticity that is a necessary condition of any transcendentalizing gesture, to be arguing that philosophy was nothing other than, for example, a particular language game, rhetoric, or literary genre, which would then reduce philosophy to the concerns of some other hegemonic discipline, such as linguistics or literary criticism, which would in turn simply assume the meta-disciplinary place of traditional philosophy itself. The point is this is precisely Derrida's critique of Benveniste. It's not, it's not what Derrida himself is endorsing, despite the fact that most people in the 80s seem to imagine that he was. And on the other, those who have read him conversely, indeed in the absolute opposite direction, as their very epitome of the transcendental philosopher, uh, then subjecting the human sciences to some unknowable and mystifiable law, probably taking the name of, for example, difference, uh, that would then conversely see Derrida as attempting to reclaim philosophy's mastery over any other upstart disciplines that might uh, um, seek to uh, free themselves from it. This, this, I'm, I'm presenting this in a negative term, but there's a, there's a positive or affir affirmatory version of this argument as well, where you have someone like Rorty on the one hand, who thinks that Derrida's great because he reduces philosophy uh, to simply a matter of rhetoric or a language game, providing it's understood to be private philosophy. On the other hand, you have someone like Rudolf Gachet, uh, very important to the dissemination of Derrida's works in, in, in an Anglophone context in the 80s and 90s, who is concerned to put Derrida back into the history of philosophy and to protect him from these irresponsible, usually American uh, literary theorists reading Derrida. So you know, there, there's the negative and there's the positive version of this same argument, both of which want to reduce the complexity of that relationship, either by seeing Derrida simply turning philosophy into language or literature, um, or seeing Derrida as asserting philosophy's sovereignty again over theory. And the reason I, I unpack this a little bit is because in that sense, the more recent move to reassert the sovereignty of philosophy over theory is in some sense already internal to the reception of Derrida uh, in, in the 1980s and 1990s. Second, however, if in this sense a certain modified Heideggerian argument is indeed set to work against structuralism in Derrida's early work, equally it is important to recognise the degree to which the latter also functions as a kind of corrective to or contamination of the former's own construal of thinking and language as connected to some more originary, we might say pre-disciplinary, moment in the history of being. That, to quote the letter on humanism, quote, knew neither a logic nor an ethics nor physics. So there's, there's always a sense, and this echoes Schelling's rejoinder to Kant, um, that, that for, for Heidegger, where, where in Schelling it's, it's under the name of philosophy, philosophy's claim to cover everything must in some sense associate with originary unity. Um, the, the role of thinking in Heidegger in much more complicated ways um, often tends to um, resolve to the same point. It has to go back behind the division of disciplines in some way. Um, this is crucial then because if the impetus of Derrida's work is not to be mistaken, as it always can be, for simply another version of fundamental ontology, which would, in Heidegger's words, precisely strive to reach back behind philosophy, as it were, 
into, quote, the essential ground from which thought concerning the truth of being emerges from the uh, letter on humanism, then it is the confrontation with the modernity of structuralism, as with, say, psychoanalysis, I want to claim, as disciplines or sciences which cannot simply be mastered by philosophy, even as they are haunted by it, remain pivotal to grasping this. Indeed, even more emphatically, I'd want to argue, it is in something like the necessary opening to or contamination by a precisely transdisciplinary movement in Derrida, rather than simply a modified claim to, quote, reassign philosophy on the basis of the ontological question, as Badiou puts it, who might therefore be said to be far more of a Heideggerian than Derrida is in this respect, that Derrida's distance from any Heideggerianism is most acute. I told Peter I was going to see what he said about that. Um, there is a sense in which you could argue on the basis of that reassigning of philosophy to ontology, that the Badiou, even though he conceives of ontology from uh, a seemingly opposed direction, is in formal terms far more Heideggerian than Derrida uh, actually is in these terms. Um, it, this is also where without getting into all the uh, complexities of this, that the Derrida's relationship to Marx, I think, and to the Marxian critique of, of the self-sufficiency of philosophy um, is perhaps most clear, both in a, in a series of enigmatic remarks around uh, the letter on humanism, where Heidegger makes a few rare references to Marx, but, but approves Marx precisely on the basis, he says, that Marx's philosophy of history is superior to other philosophies of history because it recognises the estrangement of man is based in the homelessness of modern man. And of course, that's precisely the point at which Derrida is seeking to um, uh, break with, with Heidegger. It's, it's also the background, I think, to um, a, a favourite line of mine, which is, which is Derrida's retort to Antonio Negri in a debate following the, the publication of Spectres of Marx, that, quote, the word ontological is not to be found in Marx, and one should not perhaps be too quick to try and reinsert it. Now, you know, there's an objection here to Negri, just outflank Negri by saying, you know, what you're doing is re-philosophizing Marx far too quickly, too hasty. You shan't, one should not perhaps be too quick to try and reinsert a word such as ontology into Marx. Okay, uh, in what time remains to me then, I wanted to do a little more than try to sketch out what would then be a certain protocol for reading a book like Of Grammatology uh, in the light of these various problematics. So the central problematics and arguments of Of Grammatology are, I would take it, well known, and I won't repeat them in any detail here. Suffice it to say that Derrida's philosophical interest in writing derives from its consistent denigration across the history of philosophy as a mere technical or material supplement, a disturbingly empirical, contingent or differential form constituted through repetition that must be securely, if futilely, placed outside that self-presence said to be uniquely embodied in speech. Um, so, according to a, a logic which will become utterly familiar across 30-odd years of Derrida's uh, writing, um, one would show the way in which what appears to be primary, uh, or what is presented as primary, is in fact always already contaminated by the secondary or the supplementarity, um, which then necessarily disrupts any structure of pure oppositionality, either identity or difference. More specifically, of course, of grammatology starts out from showing that it is precisely those features denounced in writing which proved to be logically necessary to the functioning of language as a whole, including speech. So this is the most famous part of grammatology, which is the argument with Saussure, where Saussure's attempt to, in some sense, present speech as a kind of origin of the system of language is shown to be incoherent insofar as the system of language must already be at work in speech, uh, and therefore um, uh, the division between speech and writing uh, um, can, can be shown to uh, uh, be dis dismantable. You know, so that writing becomes necessary to the functioning of language as a whole. Um, rather, however, than pursuing this complex argument in great detail, um, what I want to track instead is a certain movement between what we might term different levels or forms of generality in the unfolding of, of grammatology. It's movement between different levels or forms of generality. Now, no doubt the first crucial point to be made would be what, what is therefore named in Derrida by the terms grammatology and, say, deconstruction, cannot be thought to name the same thing. Indeed, at first sight, what is striking and no doubt surprising about of grammatology is the extent to which Derrida would seem to toy with the idea of elaborating something like an actual positive science of writing with all the appearance of, as Jean-Luc Nancy puts it, establishing some entirely new discipline or perhaps transdiscipline or interscience whose inauguration is being undertaken. The concept of writing should define the field of a science. Thus begins the second chapter entitled Linguistics and Grammatology. The concept of writing should define the field of a science. Why? 
First of all, and very simply, um, because the denigration of writing as a mere adjunct to or representation of speech means that Derrida notes no adequate account of writing, neither scientific or historical terms has as yet been produced. So in the 1966 essay on Freud, which I'll come back to in a moment, he's still saying at the end of that essay that there is a need for a history of writing, he says, an immense field in which only preparatory work has been done up to now. Second, however, and for more directly historical reasons, precisely because, you know, why writing? Because of what Derrida describes uh, writing here in the mid-1960s as a contemporary inflation of the sign language itself. Most obviously in structuralism, which Izzy continues, quote, the inflation of the sign itself, absolute inflation, inflation itself. Now, suffice it to say, it's for this reason that any reading of Derrida as a fundamentally linguistic let alone semiological thinker, is so profoundly wrong. Indeed, on the contrary, a good part of what is at stake in this passage is an attempt to situate what is generally designated as a linguistic turn across both philosophy and the human sciences, in part precisely as a problem of its cross-disciplinary inflation itself. Of grammatology starts, in a sense, critically, from the problem of what most obviously in structuralism Structuralism is taken to be what he calls this inflation of the sign of language. So, so far from Derrida's start from the position of um, uh, extending language or a kind of linguistic idealism, which he's often imagined to um, uh, approve of, there is nothing outside the text and so on, um, he's actually starting conversely from the problem of the inflation of language across disciplines. You know, it's not, not just linguistics, but the, the, the language is, is, is turning up everywhere, massively inflated. So as Derrida puts it, quote, however the topic is considered, the problem of language has never been simply one problem among others, but never so much as at present has it invaded as such the global horizon of the most diverse researches and the most heterogeneous discourses. Never so much as at present has it invaded as such the global horizon of the most diverse researches and the most heterogeneous discourses. The devaluation of the, lang of the word language itself, he continues, and how in the very hold it has upon us, it betrays a loose vocabulary, are evidences of this effect. So what is being criticised here might then precisely be understood in terms of a critique of a certain model of transdisciplinarity, a work within such a linguistic turn itself for which, say, the invasion across the most diverse researches and the most heterogeneous discourses of a phrase such as structured like a language would be a symptom. However, the real problem is, in Derrida's eyes, not so much this transdisciplinary crossing itself, whereas the problem is not so much the, the, the way in which the word language crosses over various dif different disciplines, as it is the tendency for it to revert to a transcendentalism, which would, insofar as it has been precisely positioned outside of philosophy, go itself uninterrogated. This is then precisely what Derrida means by the transcendental contraband. A transcendental is effectively smuggled in here. In order then to interrupt this, a thought of writing must effectively go beyond language. Writing comprehends language, Derrida puts it at one point in of, of grammatology. The result, however, is that the very project of a grammatology, as anything like a new science or inter-science of writing, must itself be exceeded at another level of generalization or rather ultimately suspended in the text, insofar as in Derrida's words, its very condition of possibility turns into a condition of impossibility. Quote, graphematics or gram grammatography ought no longer to be presented as sciences, or no longer to be presented as sciences, their goal should be exorbitant when compared to grammatological knowledge. So what I'm interested in is this, this kind of movement of, of, of generalization. Graphematics should be exorbitant when compared to grammatological knowledge. Nonetheless, then, if the idea of grammatology as a science is inherently problematic, this does not mean that Derrida doesn't take seriously the issue of science, or let's say the, the modernity of science, of the disciplinarity of science. And in particular, that he doesn't take seriously its challenge to the self-sufficiency of the discipline of philosophy itself. The dispute with Heidegger is, in fact, in part, precisely to be understood on these grounds. As Derrida points out, for example, in his reading of the letter on humanism, quote, Heidegger takes no account of a certain zoological knowledge that accumulates, is differentiated, and becomes more refined concerning what is brought together under this so general and confused word animality. It's a, a crude and impassing point, but I think a significant one, that part of Derrida's response to, 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 to Heidegger is saying, is, is, is to think of Heidegger's thinking as ultimately resorting back into a self-sufficiency of philosophy under another name, because it's, it's not taking seriously 
something like zoological knowledge. It imagines it can talk about animality without talking about modern zoological knowledge. And it's the, it's the disciplinary modernity here that interests me. Equally, then, the crucial dimension of Derrida's critique of structuralist science relates not so much to his challenge to philosophy as then to its own still too philosophical presuppositions. Derrida asserts if grammatology, quote, ought not to be one of the sciences of man, it is because it asks first the question of the name of man. So as to renounce, for instance, the old notions of peoples said to be without writing and without history, end quote. Significantly, where Derrida thus interrogates here what in Levi Strauss's anthropology, for example, remains as he sees it reliant on precisely traditional philosophical as well as ethnocentric assumptions, he does so in part through the challenge posed to it by another science uh, with which it intersects, that here of André Loire Gourin's uh, paleoanthropology, a science which he suggests, quote, the people said to be without writing lack only a certain type of writing. Derrida stresses here in particular uh, Luar Garand's concept of the program, partly derived from cybernetics, as a generalised operation that, as Christopher Johnson puts it, is, quote, both before and after the human, and for which, in Derrida's words, the human is then simply a stage or an articulation in the history of life, hence exceeding the strictly anthropological uh, itself. I'm not going to go into that in great detail. I, the, the crucial point for me is the way in which, is the kind of movement here, again, so in a sense, kind of playing structuralism and Heidegger off against each other at this, at this point. So, so Heidegger, on the one hand, uh, considered to be too philosophical in a more traditional sense, despite the apparent move to the name thinking, um, which is brought out by posing against it the modernity of, of scientific disciplines, zoological knowledge and so on. On the other hand, uh, accusing structuralism of being too philosophical without knowing it, and therefore it resulting in a kind of unconscious transcendentalism, um, but at the same time mobilising that critique, not simply philosophically, but by intersecting with another scientific discourse. So in this case, Leroy-Garand's uh, uh, um, paleoanthropology. So let me try, uh, try then at this point to recap a little. What is being traced is, I've suggested, a certain movement First, the proposition of grammatology as a science or an inter-science that, to quote the 1983 essay, would form a new object or rather a new thematic network, responding to the denigration and repression of the graphic within a certain dominant philosophical thought. And that is therein of grammatology, and it's never, it's never erased as such in of grammatology, that grammatology is indeed at one level a science with a new object or another new thematic network, which is writing. Second, however, moving up a level, so to speak, a deconstruction of such repression, repression of writing, as it is continued seemingly outside of philosophy as such, but in fact in important respects philosophically through and through, in the transdisciplinary inflation of the sign language common to, for example, structuralism and the so-called linguistic turn more generally. This is very schematic. Third, then, so as our first two levels, there are going to be six, Third, then, a claim that given the ultimate incoherence of such an account of language, to the degree that what is said of writing can be shown to be already at work at speech and to be structurally continuous with it, it must in fact be the secondary term, that is writing, that most plausibly comprehends the field of language as a whole. So writing comprehends language, Derrida says. Fourth, however, the recognition, moving up another level, therefore that what is meant at this point by writing can no longer be contained by its ordinary or empirical sense in opposition to speech, and hence must be radically enlarged, Stoda's own terms, enlarged. Fifth, a demonstration of this enlargement cannot then in fact be limited at the point of covering merely the entire field of linguistic signs, but can be shown to in some sense designate all effects of presence, including those constitutive of life itself. And then six. Uh, as it were, finally, an arrival at the quasi-transcendental, in a different sense than the Foucauldian use of this term, we'll come back to a moment, concept of an archi-writing or thought of the original trace, which constitutes, uh, as Derrida puts it elsewhere, a limitless generality, an unconditional generalization for which all experience, indeed all being, is made up only of traces, in famous quotes, whether we look to the side of the subject or the object, we will find nothing preceding the trace. The term writing is returned to name this. It is only, Derrida states, because, quote, it essentially communicates with the vulgar concept of writing. And so far as for the tradition, writing names a disruption of self-presence or a formidable difference. 
So I'm, I'm schematising that very well. But what I'm interested in is this movement between levels. So in a sense, and of course it doesn't come in this order uh, in, in of grammatology itself, where they are interweaved in various ways, but I think can schematically be thought of in terms of this movement between levels. So one begins with the idea of a science of writing. No one's talked enough about writing. There's no history of writing. There's no science of writing. So we must have a science of writing. You, you then move from that to an upper level to deconstruct the relationship between, or the hierarchy between speech and writing, which you show, in fact, the two are, are structurally uh, continuous with each other. Given that, you then move up another level and you say, well, then writing is, so to speak, the truth of language, not as uh, um, uh, Saussure thinks speech, not in any kind of straightforward metaphysical way, but simply because what Saussure and others claim to be outside of the true essence of language can, in fact, be shown to be everywhere in language, uh, and that thing has always been named writing. Um, of course, once you've done that, then you realise that writing is no longer what we normally mean by writing. So you expand the concept of writing to cover the whole of language. Having done that, you then say, well, actually, all effects of being and presence can, in fact, be shown to have this effect, because the whole metaphysical structure, as Derrida reads it, is based upon keeping the self-presence of speech apart from difference and relationality and so on, at which point you move up to the properly quasi-transcendental level of archi writing, where the word writing is only retained, he says, um, because of what it is as, as common sense or vulgarly meant. So the first point where we go back to the simple question, and I'm aware of time here, why writing? A science of writing, Derrida remarks at the very beginning of grammatology, runs the risk, quote, of never being established as such. There could be for it, for example, no unity of a project, no statement of limits, and so on. And that is because the very idea of such a science is one that would liberate us from an age dominated by logocentric patterns of thinking, quote, is meaningful for us only within that age and that domination. So to the extent that there can be no proper name for what Derrida designates as archi-writing, and that's the pivotal point of the argument with Heidegger, who he believes has either a hope or a nostalgia, as he calls it, um, uh, to, to ultimately find a proper name for being, what name it is given, then, is always in the order of what Derrida at various points calls a nickname, always provisional, variant, temporary, and thereby historical, only meaningful for this moment, however extended, and this form of domination. In other words, its naming is always what is, for me, I think, the most enigmatic concept in Derrida's work, a matter of strategy. He uses this term again and again, particularly in the 1960s. Now, this term Derrida writes in the final paragraph of his 1980 thesis defense is, quote, a word that I have perhaps abused especially as it was always to specify in the end a strategy without any goal, finality. However, if this seeks to interrupt then any strictly teleological determination, strategy cannot be strategy without some kind of orientation, a question of determining what elsewhere Derrida calls the best lever. This then we might say is the moment of a certain pragmatics in Derrida's thought. And it's hence what is, for example, at stake in the following famous passage from Of Grammatology. Quote, by a hardly perceptible necessity, it seems as though the concept of writing is beginning to go beyond the extension of language. Undoubtedly, it's not by chance that it's overwhelming, supervenes at a moment when the extension of the concept of language, as in structuralism, effaces all its limits. He continues, now, that is today, we tend to say writing. Now, we tend to say writing, to designate not only the physical gestures of literal pictographic or ideographic inscription, but also the totality of what makes it possible. Um, and he goes on to mention cinematography, choreography, photography, uh, pictorial, sculptural writing, athletic writing, enigmatic enough at one point. Um, uh, ending in, it's also in this sense that the contemporary biologist speaks of writing and program in relation to the most elementary process of information within the living cell. And finally, whether it has essential limits or not, the entire field covered by the cybernetic program uh, will be the field of writing. And I realize I'm running out of time. It would be very interesting to think about cybernetics. Yeah, I'll just put that as well there. I mean, in a sense, even more than structuralism, cybernetics is the transdisciplinary program of the post-war period but one with a very opaque relationship to philosophy. Um, and there's a, a kind of occluded influence, both on structuralism, Lacan, for instance, but also um, into people like Atari and Derrida. The term double bind in Derrida comes from Gregory Bateson. The term plateau comes from Bateson. A lot of Guattari's thoughts on ecology come through the, cybernetic, the second generation, cybernetics, and so on. Anyway, um, right. So, a couple of things to follow from this. First, then, what Derrida will go on to delineate as quasi-transcendental in regard to its limitless generalization, so different to the Foucauldian 
uh, use of the term that Patrice was talking about because it is precisely defined by limitless generalization. In the concept of archi writing, cannot be thought then here and now without the privileged motif of writing. Now we tend to say writing, or at least not in the same way, even if this very generalization is what ultimately renders the very project of grammatology as a positive science impossible. This means, however, that it is also in some sense reliant upon strategically the specific historical resonances of this term itself. Resonances which do not simply derive from philosophy, but must come from elsewhere, from a cross-disciplinary proliferation of the name of writing across a range of different fields of knowledge, from linguistics to biology to cybernetics. Second, while therefore a certain quasi-transcendental and unconditional generalization may indeed be without limit, a limitless generalization, there is nothing that is not uh, um, uh, applicable to it. This motif, or this term, the name of writing, uh, as historical and as a matter of strategy, is not. Whether such a limit is understood in scientific, social, or ultimately, for me at least, experiential terms, providing that we are obliged here not to exhaust any concept of experience in phenomenology of the living present or of the humanist subject. So let me finish then with a remark of Derrida's from the closing pages of the 1966 essay that I mentioned earlier, Freud and the Scene of Writing. Derrida writes here, a radicalization of the thought of the trace, the thought of writing, archi-writing, would be fruitful not only in the deconstruction of logocentrism, but in a kind of reflection exercised more positively in different fields, at different levels of writing in general. He mentions uh, uh, the psychopathology of everyday life. Interesting moment. These fields, he continues, would be numerous, even if the, quote, problem of their respective limits would be that much more formidable to the extent that this problem could not be subsumed by any authorised conceptual opposition. Certainly is this, then, this possibility that of grammatology, I think, of all books, consistently broaches. It is also what I think is never quite realised in Derrida's own work. For if, as I'm suggesting, the concept of writing, as Derrida mobilises it, may be said to function necessarily as both quasi-transcendental and transdisciplinary, and must do so, Ultimately, the quasi-transcendental always, as it were, tends to win out over the transdisciplinary in Derrida's own texts. Some of the difficulties generated by this can be observed in the cross-disciplinary fate of many of his own concepts when set to work by others in other fields. This might be precisely the moment of terminology, as Peter described it, where they can then tend to oscillate problematically between, on the one hand, positivistic instrumentalization, so the amount of books searching for the use of the term writing uh, in Shakespeare during the 1980s, um, or a uh, new historicism of, of ghosts and so on, uh, from the content of hauntology, or on the other, a lower level mimicry of a logic of generalization itself. So all stories become ghost stories. Um, all media become haunted. As for Derrida himself, then, one reason why the kinds of inter-scientific programs envisioned, I think, in of grammatology, Freud and the scene of writing and elsewhere, never quite come to fruition are always suspended, might well be the increasing domination of his own later work by an indissoluble linkage of the logic of limit, limitless generality, quasi-transcendental, to one of singularity, that which cannot be simply reduced to the states of a particular case according to a general law, even as its very singularity is dependent upon its relations with others. This is more complex than many suppose, since the singular is for Derrida neither simply the individual nor the particular, neither pure alterity nor pure event. Nonetheless, what it can tend to occlude is the ongoing necessity for other modes of generality. In the words of the Freud essay, different levels of writing in general, and hence different forms of specific transdisciplinary thought and conceptual passage. In other words, what it tends to include are those zones of instability and interference that mark the inter-science. Thank you.